0: Hi there, everybody. Hi,
1: guys. I think we're live.
0: I think we have sound. I can see a green bar. We're looking good. You can tell we're in color.
1: We are both in color. Yeah, I,
0: I look like Walt Disney's Wonderful world of color, all in a single shirt. <laughs> it's a
1: good shirt. <laughs> but I love this shirt.
0: This shirt is so comfortable. Oh, my goodness. It is a wonderfully comfortable shirt. A gift yes. from my lovely wife,
1: Patty. Oh, Yeah, Let me see what the name of that again is. It, what... I think it's oh, yeah. Sarasota. So good. No? no, this is Bahama Coast. Bahama Coast. From... They're these shirts from Tommy Bahama, and the short sleeve ones are called Bahama Coast, and they... I'm not kidding. You can't wrinkle them even. They, no, they... they don't
0: wrinkle and they have stretch. So you know. And
1: yes, yes, and the long sleeve ones are called Sarasota stretch. Yeah, but these are Bahama. Yeah, they're coast. very
0: comfortable shirts.
1: And because they sell a million of them, and a lot of them are are linen, which means they wrinkle really Patty's easy.
0: Patty's been getting me getting them for me at birthdays and things for a while now, so now you'll see more and more of them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you know what people are commenting on? What it's hot outside.
1: Oh my god. Hot and
0: humid out there. Boy, yes. oh boy.
1: Yeah, man. Boy,
0: oh boy. Yeah, well, it's summer's here, isn't it? It is. And it, all, it just came right on. It, it was. Been, it was a cool spring, really. But now, whew, okay. Wouldn't it well, be nice
1: to have like one month of 70s?
0: Well, just move to San Diego.
1: But I don't wanna go to San Diego. <laughs> I'm just I'm saying. I'm just saying. It wouldn't Every
0: nice. once in a while, in the fall of the spring, we have kind of like this perfect month. And right. This spring wasn't really bad. No, no, it's really was pretty wasn't. good. It really, really
1: wasn't. On on. We're so glad you all are yeah, here. Yeah, so glad everybody's here today. I hope all the dads had a nice Father's Day yesterday, yep. and um, we did.
0: We did. Today we had a we nice sure Father's did. Day.
1: <laughs> we we kind of dragged it out from Thursday. Yeah, evening yeah. Patty <laughs> turns it all
0: into this big weekend extended that starts days before the weekend, and but that's okay. Hey, you know, and I get to make lots of choices.
1: Yeah, you about do. what we do or yes, what we eat,
0: did. and so we had a quiet weekend. We did. We, <laughs> Cause that's what I like. Yep. I'm, I, I'm, it's I'm okay. all into the quiet, simple life. We, right, we, darling? Yes. Yeah. We- despite the fact we're going to go to Norway in three weeks, which reminds me, just everybody gander at this announcement? Right. I've shared it with you before. We will miss three Mondays: the tenth, the seventeenth. And the twenty-fourth.
1: Yes. Because
0: well, we will be away on vacation.
1: We only miss two Sundays, but Lauren is going yeah. to fill in for both of those. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just all the way the crew. You know, when when does the cruise ship leave, and then that drives everything about how the dates work out. So we will miss three Wednesdays. Mondays. Actually, I'm missing four Tuesdays because the my uh, July fourth is a Tuesday. Yeah. So we're going to miss that, and then the next three. So my Tuesday class isn't meeting in July. Wow, That's weird. That
1: is so weird. That is
0: so yes. weird. But there you go. Yes. We're we're we are going to be celebrating our 25th anniversary this summer, yes. and we're going to go to some place cool and beautiful and green. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes.
0: So anyway, well, let's see. What else do you have for us today?
1: I don't really have anything else. I I'm, I imagine that all of you, if you've had TV on this morning, you've heard about this little submersible that was. Um, Submersible. <laughs> submersible. That is gone missing. That when took all these very, very wealthy people, because it cost $250,000 per person, to, to take them down to see the Titanic. And it's been lost now for many hours.
0: Let me just tell you, Jesus himself could not get me into that submersible. Just want you to know I'm, I'm on record with yes. that
1: he's very claustrophobic <laughs> yeah yes. yeah no
0: no way i'm i, I know thyself the oracle adela yes. um delphi said and that's me so i do know that about myself it's come on with old age but there we go
1: it is sad though i'm, I'm hoping that maybe there'll be a way it seems like this is uh you know it's 350 miles away from newfoundland and it's two miles down there's not many um you know there's not many options yeah. So hopefully they'll be back, able to get so them, get them out. We hope so. We hope so.
0: Oh, so, okay. Well, I'm gonna get us started. What do you think?
1: I think that's great.
0: Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Gonna <laughs> pray with me. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here again today on this Monday. It's hot outside, but it's we're all inside. I'm pretty sure. And um, we come today to resume our journey through Mark's gospel. A real pivotal moment in this gospel, um, one that all of us, i say, have probably been to multiple times in the course of our lives, as we've come to the Bible and heard sermons and the rest of it, and we just pray that your Spirit will make this a fresh journey for us and help us to maybe take some of the things that we bring to this and kind of put them aside and try to hear it with fresh ears so that we hear well. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. righty. Okay. Super duper. Thank you, dear. So, okay. Last week, where we finished off was the, um, we're going to start at chapter 8, verse 27. So the the little section right before, remember that's called, and scholars would call that the pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, the pericope, the little section, the paragraphs. Um, before, it's the time when Jesus encounters this blind man and has the two-stage healing, right? He heals the blind man's eyes, and then, in a strange moment, the man says, well, I'm only seeing, you know, the people are looking like trees. And then Jesus um, does it again, and the healing is complete, and the blind man can see, and yeah, wonderful. wonder, well, what's that all about? And it's probably about the fact that it is the story is meant to talk to us Jesus's talking to us about this gradual, two-stage, maybe multi-stage um, uh, project of bringing the disciples to understanding who Jesus is. Because remember, the two big themes in Mark, this, this ongoing um, unveiling of who Jesus truly is and um, the opposition to Jesus. Right, So we may spend more or less time in one of those, depending on the part that we're in. So let's just talk about the first one again. I will just want to reiterate something that I feel like, um, as, a, as a teacher, I need to come back to uh, regularly, because it's just so different than at least what I was brought up, the terms I was brought up in in the church. Okay, so when we talk about Jesus unveiling himself, revealing who he really is, that is a two-stage process. There are two pieces to that. The first piece is bringing Peter and the others to understand that he is Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. The, a Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. The anointed one, the King of Israel, the long-awaited new king from God who would rescue Israel drive out the pagan oppressors, clean up the temple, and that's the first piece. There is in that no sense of divinity, in the sense of, gee, the Messiah isn't understood by the Jews to be God. The Messiah is a human who will be given by God to this project of kicking out the pagans and cleaning up the temple and being this long-awaited king. So that is the first stage, is helping them come to understand that, yes, he is the long-awaited Messiah. The second stage, the one which is much further below the surface, it's there, you can see it's there, and Jesus does things to help them see it, but it is asking far more of these Jews. It is... The revelation that Jesus is God himself in their presence embodied with them, incarnate with them, and Jesus has you know demonstrated that with um, some of these things we call miracles i I you know um, they are miracles, but sadly in our world we tend to use the word miracle to describe. They describe when God does something in our lives, but in that, as we explain more and more miracles, it doesn't leave as much room for God. So, God works in our lives and works in this world in many ways that we don't see as miraculous, right? And God moments or uh, things that I might have once seen as a coincidence and I don't see as a coincidence anymore. So, so Jesus is you know calmed the seas and walked. You know, walked on the water, and he he fed the thousands and thousands he has done these things that will really convey to the readers of Mark at least that there's more to Jesus than merely quotes merely being the Jewish Messiah. but you just have to let the just have to let the disciples be the disciples and understand how far a leap, how far a jump it is to go from embracing Jesus as Messiah to embracing him as God because these men and women who follow Jesus, the Jews, they are radically monotheistic in a world which thought they were nuts. Everybody else in the world knows that there are bunches of gods and goddesses. The Jews were these weirdos, these freaks who thought that there was only one God and that even more freaky this God had chosen them above all the other peoples, including Caesar. So so the Jews are, are very focused on their monotheism. Hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one, however you translate that. It is a statement about about God and about their commitment to God and their commitment to the truth that there is only one God and yes this God chose them to be the ones to whom God would rescue humanity. So I say all that because we are coming to this pivotal moment with Jesus and Peter and so I'm going to ask you to open up to and you can stop me anytime with questions Yes. Um, anytime. I can't see you. Raise your hands. <laughs> but, but you can type in there and that is maybe almost as good. I don't know. Probably not, it's not really. Um, okay, so Candy Sims is taking Mike to Baylor in the morning, Wednesday morning. Yes. So we've been praying for him. We lifted Mike up in church on Sunday morning at nine thirty. Yes. So sure enough. So look at chapter eight. We'll be verse, praying, Candy. We now. sure will. Sure will. Mark at chapter 8, verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So I get to bring maps today. Yay! So let's... I almost hit the wrong button. Man. Okay, so the white arrow, arrow is pointing to Caesarea Philippi. Up there, I'm um, a good a good little distance north of the Sea of Galilee. It's up there around where the tribe of Dan ended up. Not where they started when they were settling the Promised Land, but where they ended up, up there in the north, about the northern boundaries, if you would have it, of the land of the Israelites. Now, Caesarea Philippi is an area that um, is both Gentile and Jewish. Um and I brought a couple photos of the prominent landmark in Caesarea Philippi, which is this giant rock. It's huge, a couple hundred feet high. That's a little off to the left. There's a big darkness, that opening. is a tunnel that goes back under the rock. This thing The picture doesn't really do it justice. When you're there, it's just towering. This rock is towering over you, right? And the smaller openings, right there, kind of in the center of the picture, those are where some pagan um, uh, temples and rituals and figurines were found. This next picture, will show those more closely. So there you can see them carved into the walls. Um, no surprise, this, this, this is such a landmark that it would be a place at which people would come to worship. And of course, most people, are most people Jewish? Um, maybe not up there in Caesarea, Philip. Maybe perhaps most people are Gentile. I couldn't find anybody who was brave enough to really get a breakdown. It's just an area with Jews and Gentiles alike and that's where they have gone.
1: Scott, okay. I, I just kind of quickly looked down the list and there's many people online today that have been, have been here with us on a land trip.
0: Yeah, yes. so you've seen it, right? Yes,
1: there's many people that have been here.
0: You've, you've, if you've been with us, you have seen Caesarea Philippi if you've been on a land trip. Can't, can't really do it off the cruise ship. It's, it's a far trip and t- would take too much time. But in the land trip, we have time to do a lot. And so, anyway, that's where they have gone, up to this, this city that was very much expanded um, by um, one of Herod's sons called Philip, and that's what's, why it's called Caesarea Philippi, and would later, just here's a pizza trivia for you, later um, would be called Neronius, N-E-R-O, after Nero by the local ruler, whoever that was at the time, who was, I think, try probably trying to suck up to Nero. But anyway, yeah, so that's where they are. And it says that on the way, now on the way, so they're, they're moving, Jesus and the disciples, verse 27. On the way, he asked them, well, who do people say I am? It's a big question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? Everybody knows he's Jesus, Yeshua. Everybody knows he's from Nazareth. Nazareth. So this, this is a question loaded with questions. Who do people say I am? Well, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist. Now, why would anybody say John the Baptist? Well, because, again, remember in this world, everybody doesn't know what everybody looked like. A whole bunch of people would only know that John the Baptist came out and did a bunch of stuff, and then got his head taken off. And now Jesus shows up. And so it isn't crazy that somebody might think he is somehow, I don't know, you know, some way, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Well, why do they say Elijah? So, um, because of the significance of a prophecy at the end of the book of Malachi. So let's let's go to Malachi. What do you think, Patty? Should sure. we? Sure. Let's so go. Let, let's go to Malachi. It is the last book in the Christian Old Testament. It, sure is. it is not the last book the way the Jews order the Bible. Remember, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament have the same stuff, it's just in a different order, right? But the Christians, have Malachi right there at the end because of its lead in and they put Matthew as the first of the Gospels, not because it's the first written, that's Mark, but because it it, it is the most Jewish. It's the natural receiver, I guess, of the way they saw this bridge between Malachi and the Gospels. So go to Malachi, go to chapter four, go to verse six, very end, last bit chapter 5, verse 5 actually. So this is God's word brought to them by Malachi. This is maybe 325, 350 years before Jesus. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes day of the Lord. That is an important phrase to know when you come to the Gospels. Because when you come to the Gospels, the Jews of Jesus' day, well they're waiting for the day of the Lord, because that's the day that everything's going to be put right, you see? That's going to be the day when the pagans are kicked out and the the corrupt priests are gone, when the world is turned right side up, when things are as they should be, um, when the kingdom of God arrives, and it will be very good for the Jews, they say, because you know, they have strived to be righteous, I guess, at least many of them, and, and, um, but bad for those who, who are not with God. So that, that's kind of the idea. So I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else, because God will not be mocked, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So this is pretty standard Old Testament prophet stuff, because abandoning God, becoming faithless toward God, carries its own consequences, and it's played out many times in the story of Israel. So, when the day of the Lord comes, when God arrives to do God's big thing, you want to be with God in that. Of course you do. Who could argue against that? Of course you do. And so it's it's a word of encouragement and a word of warning, all at the same time. But that's that's a, where a lot of this Elijah stuff come from. And it's fed because does Elijah die at at the end of his story in the Book of Kings? He
1: just gets taken up in a whirlwind, doesn't he?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Fiery. Elijah's
0: chariot goes up, and you know that that mantle, this this big shawl-like thing that he wears, falls out and falls to the ground. And um, Elisha, E L S H A S H A, picks it up and will become God's God's new um, person.
1: Is that new where prophet. we get the the saying in even in our modern times? You were passing on the mantle.
0: Passing on the mantle of leadership? Yes. It sure is. Wow. Somewhere I have a volume. It's probably, I, I don't know. It's somewhere. I don't know where it is. That goes through these enormous number of, of phrases we have in English that we got from the Bible. Sayings and cliches and other things. That, and then also from Shakespeare. Shakespeare and the Bible just <laughs> just created all of this stuff that we don't even know where it came from. But that's one good example. The mantle of leadership, Book of Kings. Okay, so back to Mark's gospel, verse 28. So Jesus has said to them, well, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. They were kind of waiting, the people of Jesus' day were, they, I mean, they were waiting for like a prophet of old. They they knew things were getting more and more, more and more, what? More and more desperate. Think back to Jesus's first words in this gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What you have waiting, been, what you've been waiting for, is now happening. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news." So, John the Baptist, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets, and then he looks at his disciples. This is the way I see it. He looks, looks at them all. They're all they're all on with him on the road there. And he said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Because they've been with him. They've seen all of these things that he has done. They have heard all of his teachings, all the things That just to have amazed people time and time and time and time again, and the depth of his teachings and the authority that he takes on and all the rest of it, the fact that he forgives sins and casts out demons and all this other stuff. And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And Peter gets it right. Jesus is the Messiah. Right? why would peter say this he because he can't deny that what he sees in jesus are things that nobody has seen before that the jesus speaks with an authority that not even moses had where can this come from it can only come from god so this must be god's anointed one now finally lift it up in this day of the Lord which is right at hand the coming of the kingdom of God and Peter answers boom you are the Messiah you are the anointed one you are the one we've been waiting for verse 30 and Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him he knows how explosive this is you know it's it's Jesus knows what he wants to do, knows what he needs to do, and he needs time to do it. And it's not yet time. The way this is handled wonderfully in John's Gospel um, is when Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not spoken here, written here, but he might have said it to them. It All it says is Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He might have said, my hour has not yet come, something like that. And their heads are swimming, 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 swimming. Of course they are. These people, these men are on the inside of something wondrous, something the Jews have dreamed about for how long? Hundreds of years at least, right? It was, it was almost 600 years. It's, it has been about 600 years since the Babylonians destroyed the temple of Solomon. And yes, they've rebuilt the temple, but they don't have an ark to put there anymore. They don't have the stone tablets anymore. That's all been lost. And they've just traded one pagan presser oppressor for another over all this time. Even, even, even the Maccabees proved to be a big disappointment. And now it's the Romans, and they're just—it's just—they're, so you know, so many of them are tired of waiting. And just again, remind yourselves that these are people who would have seen at least two thousand Jews crucified on the. Roads of Galilee in about 6 A.D. when Jesus was about 10. Of course they would say, when, O God? When? 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 Please, O God. Why? 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 Come? 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 And now Peter answers, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, now we haven't run across this phrase in a little while, the Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses most often to refer to Himself. It is not just a fancy little way for Jesus to call Himself human. That's not it. What it is, it comes from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one presented who comes to the throne of God and is given dominion, power, and rule over God's creation. That's who the Son of Man is in Daniel 7. It's a big climactic moment in the visions of Daniel 7 after the beasts that threaten Israel have all been destroyed. It's the Son of Man who comes forward. So it's it's... And that is a... Connection that Jesus wants to use to describe who he is as the Son of Man. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are the leaders of Israel. These are the shepherds of Israel who have led the people astray and away from God. And they would see Jesus as what? As a usurper. Usurper. As one who threatens them. As one who threatens their position, threatens their prestige, threatens their livelihood. They don't want the world turned upside down. They're not anxious for the day of the Lord to arrive, because when the day of the Lord arrives, everything's going to change. They don't want stuff to change. They're on on top. They are the ruling class, as it were. Um, So Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the leaders and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. In other words, he doesn't dance around it. Right? There are times in our lives when dancing around hard things, is, is, it's really okay. But there are other times when if we dance around the subject, we do a lot of harm, and Jesus wants them to understand. So he speaks to them plainly. He tells them what is coming, that he will suffer, that he will die, and that he will rise again. And Peter, upon hearing this, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. He began to scold Jesus. In Peter's head, is there any room for a suffering and dead Messiah? No. No. As I've said many times, you know, an oxymoron are two words put together that don't belong together. Okay, so, so crucified Messiah are two words that absolutely do not belong together in the mind of any Second Temple Jew. The Messiah was to come in the wonderful phrasing of N.T. Wright in power and might and wonder and glory. Not end up dead at the hands of the hated pagan oppressors, the Romans, no power and might and wonder and glory for everybody to see. Kick out the pagans, clean up the temple, and all the rest of it. So, Peter rebukes Jesus. No, Jesus, this can't be. You just, I just said you were the Messiah. You are the Messiah. So, no, obviously this isn't it. This isn't what what lies ahead. Obviously, it's not what lies ahead. <laughs> obviously verse 33 but when Jesus turned so i always picture you know they're walking along right cuz it says they're on their way so i always picture this in movement and they're talking and Jesus is talking and now he he turns around and he looks at his disciples as they're talking and he rebukes Peter and i think he i think he figuratively jumps on Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, does he think that Peter is Satan? Does he think that that um, the accuser, because that, that's who Satan is, is at work here? So no to Peter being Satan, but yes to this is, these are satanic forces at work against Jesus. perhaps blinding Peter, blinding the, the, the disciples. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You know, stop whispering in Peter's ears. Let him hear me well. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are, you, you're, you're gonna try to tempt me, Jesus, not to take this path that I must take, because Jesus knows that doing what he is doing, saying what he is saying, he is going to run smack dab into the authority of the priests and the Romans. And those who do that end up on crosses. It's not a new concept. It's well known. So, He doesn't need that temptation. You remember, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and prays for another way forward. Yes. He'd be foolish if he didn't want another way forward. He doesn't need Peter trying to talk him out of this. If, if you take that sort of temptation away from Jesus, like it's not really real because Jesus is God, and it's like you make him less than human. And he's not less than human, he is human. So he is God and he is human, not in parts. Not just kind of mixed together like a <laughs> margarita swirl. He is, he is God and he is human. And he wrestles with things as we wrestle with them. He weeps over Lazarus as we weep over the death of our friends. And he does not need this temptation from Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Because all this stuff about the Messiah and all these things have to be, you know, that it's all really coming out of the heads of these people. They've forgotten Isaiah 53. Open that up later this week. Read Isaiah 53, The Suffering Servant the one who who the lamb who is looks as if it's been slaughtered who doesn't speak so it's um it's, it's it's not a good moment for peter it's understandable i get that but just Just see Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. This is God's project. Right? God, in the person of Jesus, is doing and being for Israel what they are unwilling to do and be for themselves. And it's going to be at a price. And it's going to be at the price of Jesus' own broken body. And he knows it. He knows where this confrontation will take him. It does, not take, it does not take divine powers to know where Jesus is headed unless he backs off. Anyway, he's not going to back off. He knows what his vocation is and he's going to stay faithful to it all the way to the end. He's not ever going to cut and run as I might. almost certainly would. Okay. Okay, so now what is the natural thing then to speak to them about here? Maybe to remind them that their own paths are not paths filled with, you know, cotton candy, spices, and lucky charms their own path is going to be difficult because they are confronting the dark powers of this world. They are confronting people in this world who have given themselves over to darkness. How else do you possibly explain people going to arenas to watch other people get slaughtered? and cheering and yelling as if they were at a bullfight in Spain, which is bad enough, but now it's people down in the arena. And not just one bull, but bunches of people. Yeah. You know, that for me that's always one of these grounding places to remind myself about these arenas. This is the world I'm talking about that you have to live in, recognize you're living in. Granted, the Jews didn't do that, but the world does who is in charge of Galilee and Judea? In truth? Rome. N- Rome, right, not Herod. Not really the priests, it is, it is Rome is the power. Rome is the power. And Herod, Antipas, and the priests, they, they get whatever authority they have simply, it's simply derived from Rome. The priests could argue otherwise, but everybody knows that this time they know the priests are all corrupt. They're getting rich, rich, rich. Rich, rich, rich. Okay. So, verse 34. Any thoughts or questions at this point while I finish up my little bit of coffee here?
1: No study. We're quiet today. Quiet group.
0: Okay. Now, so then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple." Now, see, Mark, right? Mark's writing in the 60s.
1: Oh, there is a question. I'm sorry. Okay. Just now from Avon Hayes. She said, Did Peter understand Jesus was Messiah and God? That God came as the Messiah?
0: Okay, so Yvonne's question is In addition to this first stage with Jesus, which is that Jesus is Messiah, did Peter come to understand that Jesus is God? No reason to think that's true at this point. All he says is, you are the Messiah. That's stage one. That's big. That's huge. And he doesn't even have that right. Really, truly, right? Because the first thing Jesus says about what's coming, Peter wants to disown. But he has, you are the Messiah, he says. Now the question is, when did Peter come to the deeper, fuller understanding of who Jesus is? That Jesus indeed is the God incarnate. When does that happen? Well, it has to happen after Jesus' death and resurrection. resurrection yes. Because where is Peter when Jesus is crucified?
1: Hiding.
0: He's hiding in an attic somewhere, right? He's not around. He's, he denies Jesus three times in the wee hours before Jesus' crucifixion. So it comes after what? Not even necessarily after resurrection. That doesn't really do it. It's after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fills these people with truth, um, insight, and they come to, to realize when, when they look back upon Jesus, what he sought, said and that indeed they were in the presence of God, which is why Rapidly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Christians find themselves worshiping Jesus as God, speaking of him as they would only speak of God. And you see it in the earliest scriptures. You see it in Paul's letters. That the Christians quickly came to the place where they were worshiping Jesus as God. But Peter right now, no, no not you, you we would need to go to the book of acts to get there to the time when that when and and it's not like throwing a switch for them I don't think it's just just think of how profound it is to claim that a person you you walked with and lived with for two or three years was god incarnate the god who created all that is the Genesis 1 and 2 God, that that very God was incarnate in your friend, your friend, Yeshua, from that little village of Nazareth. That is like, you know, we have advantage of everything that comes before us and the Gospels. And these, these These guys, they don't have any of that. Their minds are getting blown time after time and, and we want them to make leaps that they can't make. And so I, I end up being pretty sympathetic toward the blindness of the disciples because I think I have a sense of how far those, how, how much their entire worldview and their entire understanding of themselves has to change. So, thank you, Yvonne. Verse 34. So, Jesus calls the, disi- the crowd, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So, now he's got a larger group. This is meant for a larger group of people, some of whom might be followers. It includes his disciples, and it might include hangers on, the curious, you know? And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's a famous line, isn't it? Take up their cross and follow me. Sometimes it's kind of a throwaway line nowadays. Or we, yeah, well, that's, that's the cross I bear in life. And it. what is it about? It is about understanding that the path of commitment to Jesus is gonna come at a price. And I've really always felt felt and known from Scripture that if one believes there is no price to be paid, you don't understand and perhaps haven't really committed yourself to Christ. I can when I first started this work, there was a website I used a lot to get images from, and they had a whole big long list of keywords so I could like put in any any keyword like Jesus or whatever, and, and, and it would pull up images that I could use for slides in class or sermons or whatever. And I remember this so well. I would go down that list, and everything was about victory and hands in the air and all this kind of stuff, and there was really almost nothing. About sin, or suffering, or loss, or difficulty. But those are—that's all true of our lives. Um, Patty of wa- Patty and I have watched a few, couple episodes of a little show. Um, it's okay, but it, it's in—in in it there. It's the center of it is around some Hasidic Jews, and. One thing they say often when they greet each other, may your suffering be at an end. May your suffering be at an end. It's a very, the Jews have suffered mightily. It's a very different way of understanding life, right? Than thinking you just live your life jumping from victory to victory. That isn't, there isn't anything really Christian about that. And it isn't really even, True. Rick Warren, you know, the writer of The Purpose Driven Life, one of the biggest, best-selling Christian books ever, while he was celebrating that victory, you know what was going on? His wife had breast cancer. And he said it reshaped his theology. He used to think you in life you went through highs and lows. And then he realized, nah, 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 there's two tracks. <laughs> You're living two tracks at the same time. One track is filled with some good stuff, but th- th- this track of suffering is with us. It's really with us all the time. And um, in our friends and our family and our world and the rest of it. And so Jesus says, Look, you're, you're going. I've told you I'm going to suffer. You too. You need to be ready to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Meaning that if you want to, if you want to have the big life in the world's terms, you're gonna lose your life truly. If you, wanna, if you want to win your life, you better be ready to take the suffering that comes from genuinely following Jesus. And I'm just telling you, I, I, I spend a decent amount of time trying to keep up with the currents in American Christianity because I am, you know, I teach and I preach and the rest of it. And there's there's a lot of people, I think, who who, who need to hear some of this. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, Jesus says. But whoever loses their life for me, and for the good news, that's what right gospel is good news. Evangelion is the proclamation of the truth of who Jesus was and is, for the gospel will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world? Be worth a hundred billion dollars yet forfeit their soul. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Your soul is priceless. Your relationship with God is priceless. Your eternity is priceless. Not boats, airplanes, buildings, homes. Those things aren't priceless. There's prices on all of it. Even if you have enough money to buy it all, you have $100 billion. Nope. What if you have $100 billion, but you've You've, you've given up your soul. You you've haven't you've cared a whit about God. You've never sought after God. You never let God seek after you. Where are you at the end of your 70 or 80 or 90 years or maybe much less? What have you gained? You're still dead. You're still dead. That's this um, great poem that was written by Percy, I think, called Ozymandias. You should Google it if you haven't ever done this. I haven't talked about it in a while, but but it's on YouTube and it's Ozymandias. It's a short poem. He wrote it as part of a prayer writing, not prayer writing, poem writing competition when he was a young man. And um, it's on YouTube and it's read by Brian Cranston. And it's really good. He's got a really good voice. He's a really, yeah, it's really good. Ozymandias, his great emperor. And it's just his, his statue's just almost completely buried in the sand and he's forgotten. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. It's the story of the pyramids. Who care about those dying pharaohs? You ever seen what they look like today when they dig them up and open up their mummy cases? <laughs> ah, so what? It's old stuff and they're dead. Dead and dead, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Verse thirty-seven. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For anyone, for if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and by the way, that's been every generation. Um, the word generation, and it generally, you know, means um, a faithless people. So it's not so much like you and I would use the word to talk about multiple generations. It's it's a it's a it's a the way Mark uses it is as an idiom to talk about well um, a a faithless generation. So this is an adulterous, faithless, sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. <clears throat> Which almost everybody takes as a reference to Jesus' return. There's a, there's a um, fella, he's written books, you see him on TV commenting once in a while named Hugh Hewitt. And Hugh, some while back, wrote a book called The Embarrassed Believer. Because he, he felt he just wanted to write about the fact that Christians seem too embarrassed. To talk about their faith openly, and to live it openly, and to let other people see that they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and um, it struck a chord with me at the time. I have to tell you, and uh, I still I still remember it. Um, we Christians need to be bold. That's what the when when Peter and John and James are are taken by the authorities in the opening chapters of Acts and the community of believers is praying, what are they praying for? They're praying for boldness. They're not praying for safety. That, that, that's not where their head is. Where their head is, where you, in the face of these threats, God, let me be bold. Let me not be, let me not embrace cowardice and turn away. Let me be bold. Let me, let me speak the gospel. Let me live the gospel. Yeah. So, Jesus gives them to it, gets it to him straight here, doesn't he? And if, this is a famous passage, obviously, 34, 35, 36,
1: 37, 38. You know, it reminded me when you were saying, you know, you read the lines about um, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. Well, Scott, you know that I, I love old TV and you know I love the old Twilight Zone. Yeah. And how many episodes did Rod Sterling write? Where, and of course, this is all set back in the late 50s, early 60s, where Satan is going to come in the form of some sort of human to try to buy the soul of somebody else's, promising him he'll be the greatest pool player or so rich. Trumpet player. So there's one where
0: he's going to be a great trumpet player.
1: And there's the one with the pool, right? With yes. um, Jack Klugman um, there's just there's a whole number of them. It must have been some kind of idea. It's an that really old, old story. It's the
0: devil and Daniel Webster. Mm-hmm. It's an old story. Yes. Right? Yes. That really is. is what is
1: your soul worth? What's
0: what your soul you sell worth? For? And, and Jesus says it's worth everything. So it's, it is priceless. So, wow. Anybody got anything? Anybody else? Bueller. <clears throat> Bueller. <laughs> Bueller, Bueller. Okay. So that closes out chapter eight. So look at the beginning of chapter nine. And he said to them, this really goes with the previous section. And he said to them, after he says, you know, you're, you're, well, let's, I'll tie it together more closely. Because in an iPad, things get separated apart more easily than on a printed page. He says to them if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels and he said to them truly i tell you some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of god has come with power and so what does that mean well First of all, the kingdom of God is arriving in Jesus with great power evidenced by His resurrection. So that's one way you could read that. Another way is that there will be those still alive right now, remember He's speaking to the disciples and crowds, alive right now, who will be there when Jesus is vindicated Shown to have been right by the destruction of the temple. Okay? That when Jesus came and preached against the priestly system and the leaders of Israel, that he was right. It was, and that was about, that happens about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So there are a couple of ways to understand this. Um, The point is that you, you. there's an immediacy. There's an immediacy to Jesus' warnings then and now. It's real easy to say, well, you know, we can, I don't know. I'll get around to it someday. You don't know that there's going to be a Sunday. I don't know that there's going to be a Sunday. Those kind of things aren't knowable to us. Um, The point is, what what God wants is for us to live in a right relationship with God every day of our lives. And the sooner (laughs) we get about that, the better. It isn't like that like no, the best alternative is to party your whole life and then like you're on your deathbed and then you, you know go, Oh Jesus, Jesus, I love you and you know, you're saved and that's it, and you got to party your whole life. No, that is not that is not how we're built. We are built to live in a right relationship with God <coughs> our whole life. So but regardless of what your age is, it's never too late to start. Right? God has always got his arms out. It's never too late to start. I've often said I really wish God had grabbed me a lot harder when I was a young man as opposed to waiting until, you know, I was 50 or nearly there. Perhaps God just needed Patty to make all this work <laughs> work for me. I don't know. But I, I wish. I wish. So, anyway. All right. So... Let's talk about the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration happens at a mountain. Do we know where it is? No. There is a place called the Mount of Transfiguration. It is Mount Tabor. It's in Galilee. It is basically this big hump in the land, that's what it looks like. It this does. is an older picture, but then I found newer. I like this picture. It looks the same. There's a monastery on it and stuff, and it. But do we really know? We don't really know where Jesus takes them. We know that Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi was at the foot of Mount Hermon, Hermon, which is the tallest mount um, in the in that region at 9,200 feet. So we don't really know. And we just have to, you know, nothing wrong with admitting that. But I think the transfiguration is often deeply misunderstood. So, So let's just look at this story and see what we can get out of it, okay? Now we get a time reference. After six days. I don't think there's any particular significance, except that we're passing time. Not the next day, not a month later, after six days. Um, Again, it just has that ring of being, yeah, Mark Mark knew how long, Peter knew how long it was. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Now, they are the innermost circle of the disciples. There are the twelve, capital T. But then there is an innermost circle of disciples, and that consists of Peter, James, and John. James and John being the sons of Zebedee, being two of the very first disciples called by Christ. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. The other disciples are left down at the bottom, where they were all alone. And there he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. So I, I, you know, I couldn't remember what the Greek word was here, so I looked it up today and the greek word here which we translate transfigured is actually i'll say it in english metamorphosis metamorphou it is in the greek something close to that changed like a, a moth into a butterfly <laughs> whatever changed transfigured changed um uh, i guess literally it is trans change figure meaning you know um your appearance, transfigured. Like
1: the gremlins.
0: (laughs) Maybe. I think that was a more, well, yeah, a very intense transformation on the part of of the gremlins. So there Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Whiter than anyone in the world could possibly bleach them. Now what does white convey in scripture? like this, in a place like this. Purity? Utter purity. Holiness. Right? No impurities whatsoever. You couldn't, you couldn't, you don't even know how to bleach clothing, clothing this white. Dazzling. Dazzlingly white. Every maker of On to detergent, would like to be able to promise you that they could do this for you, but they can't. It's that white. His clothes became dazzling white. And there appeared before them these three disciples Peter, James, and John, Elijah, and Moses. And they were all talking, the two of them were talking with Jesus. Okay. I just spoke about. The disciples' minds, being blown, as we say these days. You think their minds are blown right now? Yeah, I sure do. I sure do. You know, this isn't cast as a vision. I mean, Jesus—they just—they walked up the mountain with Jesus. And now Jesus is there, Elijah is there, Moses is there. Wow. So Peter, I kind of think for lack of anything else to say, says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we'll, we'll make s'mores. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Look at verse 6. Of course, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. He just comes up, yeah, we're going to put up tents. We're going to make a campfire. We're going to cook s'mores. I don't know. What are you doing to me here? He doesn't know. Bobby should have just kept his mouth shut. Um... and just seen what happened because then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love listen to him and then suddenly suddenly suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus so suddenly Elijah and Moses are gone and they've gotten this, this pronouncement from heaven, from up above them, right? A voice from this cloud. Now, the cloud is a theophany. It indicates the presence of God. It's like the cloud that settles on the top of Mount Sinai. So, the presence of of God has come down with them and says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Okay, so the questions I typically get are, well, so surely now they get that this is Jesus' God because this is all about the second person of the trinity and so forth and the answer to that is no even calling jesus a son of god is for these jews is not it's not a reference to divinity it was used to speak of other people who would be sons of god you know um They can't really comprehend Jesus as being God. They they can't, they have don't have their heads anything like the Trinity. Now, Mark writing 35 years later, does he think his readers are sort of getting that? Yes. Are we getting that? Yes. Right? We can't read this without getting that. That this is this is this is Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. But just don't think that what you have in your head is what Peter has in his head. Is that fair enough, Patty?
1: Yes, yes.
0: But what, does ha- what should Peter take away from this? If that's too big a leap for him, and it is, what should he take away from this? This ongoing revelation of who Jesus really is. Because what does this follow? What does this transfiguration follow in Mark's Gospel? When Peter rebukes Jesus. We did that in this very hour here. When, Jesus rebuke, when Peter rebukes Jesus. Oh, come on. I said you were the Messiah. You can't possibly tell me that you are going to suffer and be killed and rise again. What does that even mean? Listen to him the voice says this is my son whom i love see that's that's who god is that's the essence of who god is that is where you begin your theology of god that god is love and as things unfold in scripture and in the leading of the Holy Spirit in reading Scripture well that will come in the decades after this, they will come to understand that, yes, in God's very being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a community of three. There is both beloved, there is both lover and beloved. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, and so on. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him, the voice says. I don't think the voice says it pleadingly like I probably just read it but listen to him listen to him I'm going to preach a sermon in a couple weeks about listening about hearing in for for the Jews in their history the most important way that God interacts with his people is through hearing for other ancient peoples, it was usually the eye, the eye visions, all that kind of thing. Well, there are visions in the Bible, but that's that's not the principal way. The prophets might bring visions, but it's given to the people in words. It's in words. Um, God, Jesus will say something like, "Let those with ears hear." Right. It's about hearing. It's about understanding. It's about taking God's word in. This is my son whom i love listen to him and suddenly when they whoops when they looked around suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except jesus
1: that's that's the second time in mark where god says this is my son
0: uh, where's the first one
1: when he is being baptized, the voice okay. comes down from heaven, you are my son whom I love, and I am with with you I am well pleased. Yes.
0: And so it but did they hear that?
1: We don't know that. Yeah, we, don't we don't know, know who heard it. Right. But somebody heard it. <laughs> At least Jesus. At least Jesus heard yeah. it.
0: Verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone about what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, Well, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing, quote, rising from what, quote, rising from the dead meant. Because that's puzzling to them. Why is that puzzling to them? I will tell you why. It's because for the Jews, these Jews, these Second Temple Jews of, you know, 30 AD or so, 29, 30 AD, resurrection was about the resurrection of the dead, and that encompassed everybody. There was no concept of a single person being resurrected in any sense. Or rising from the dead. No, just not. So they are confused about it. Are they really coming up at a time when all of a sudden all the dead are going to be resurrected? Is that really what he means to say? Well, you know, in a way you could say yes, I suppose. They it, they aren't. Um, but Jesus will be the first and the rest will follow, that's true. But Jesus says all these things that, that really confound them. <laughs> and I I don't know. Like I said, I have a lot of sympathy for him. I They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. What is he talking about? And they asked him, Well, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied to be sure Elijah does come first. Allah, the verse from Malachi we read, and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And and what did the world do to Elijah? slash what he, who he's referring to is John the Baptist, the Baptist, right? They have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. What did they do to John the Baptist? They served his head up on a platter. What are they going to do with Jesus? <coughs> him. They're going to put him on a cross. John the Baptist met the evil, met the dark powers of this world. Jesus is going to meet the dark powers of this world. And um, I'm sure that this conversation, this continuation of this conversation, is still very perplexing to the disciples. And they are kind of thinking about things in the wrong way anyway. They're kind of off on a wrong track as we are going to see when we come back together next week. Okay? So the next story that comes up, we're going to see the disciples have gotten themselves kind of of twisted up and they're trying to make sense and resist the temptations that would probably face us all in this if we were the ones on the road there with Jesus. So, but that's next week. That's a teaser, honey. That's a teaser. That's a teaser. That's a comeback yes. for that.
1: Yes. <laughs> we have to end somewhere really, really good next week because then that will be the break.
0: Um, I think we're meeting July 3rd. We have two more Mondays.
1: Oh, that's right. We are meeting July 3rd. Yes. yes. So we meet Just the 26th before.
0: and then July good. 3rd.
1: Okay. So yeah. good.
0: Yeah, I don't know where we'll end up, but yes, any week we want to end up at a good place before we take a break. Yes.
1: All right. All righty.
0: I'm turning it over to you now, Patty.
1: Okay. I guess I'm going to close this out in prayer.
0: Okay. Okay. Sounds good.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. It's very hot out there, Lord. We thank you so much for air conditioning. and, And, Lord, we do pray for those, truly, that are out in the heat, that those that have to work out in the heat, Lord please watch over them and provide them shelter. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over our group here. As you do, God, I know every day, but when we're together, we pray for it. And we just ask you, God, to keep us healthy, to keep us safe, Lord. And we pray for your wisdom and discernment. And we pray for our friend, Mike Sims today, who will have a procedure at the Baylor Heart Hospital on Wednesday, Lord. Please be with him. And please be with his doctors and give Candy a lot of strength and um, let her just feel your presence, God, as she waits for this procedure to be done. We just pray, Lord, it all comes out wonderful. We pray, God, um, just a prayer of thanks that we have this time, that we can. We live in a country where we can come together and we can talk about your word, Lord. And uh, it, it is a blessing and it is a privilege that sometimes we, we don't stop to realize how fortunate we are. Lord watch over the families and the friends of all of us who are here today. We pray God that you would just keep us keep us all together, Lord and bring us back next Monday in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, guys. See you all. Um...
1: And there's no class tomorrow if you're yeah, a Tuesday person. Yeah, if you're a Tuesday
0: person, person, no class tomorrow. No class. Right? I've, we have VBS at the church, yes. and they take the place over.
1: They really do. They so.
0: do. It, in a great, it's a great and good thing. Oh, my goodness. Hundreds and hundreds of kids, kids, <laughs> kids are, are signed up, so but, yeah.
1: just know that no one will be there tomorrow. <laughs> bye, y'all. Bye-bye.